Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Hillside. Now, I'm not at Hillside. I do recognize that. My name is David Wood, and I have the opportunity to record my message today and uh, make it available uh, to you. So it's not ideal. I'd much rather be at your church, and I'd much rather see everyone in person. And so hopefully that will happen someday, someday soon. <laughs> Let's always hope. But uh, we are going to carry on with our series in the book of Matthew. And uh, we've been walking through the book of Matthew. Um, and if you have been uh, joining us for these last few weeks, you'll know that uh, the book of Matthew is the story about the most uh, important person and the most important event in human history. The person is Jesus Christ, and the event is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, um, and this book, the book of Matthew, uh, tells the story of Jesus, but it does so in a way with a purpose. And Matthew has a purpose, and the purpose is to draw us into a deeper walk, a deeper life of discipleship with Jesus. and. Um, Today, uh, we arrive at a very interesting passage that has a lot to say about who Jesus is, but also uh, what we can expect if we decide to follow him. And so the passage you're going to be looking at is Matthew chapter 4, uh, beginning uh, in verse 1, and we'll read to verse 11. So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 1. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of, of the uh, temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Jesus, this is a story of you. This is your word about you and we pray that you would speak to us speak into our hearts this morning what you want us to uh, to know uh, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to receive and the courage to respond to what you say to us today in jesus name amen okay so a uh, couple observations i want to make just uh right from the get-go uh when we look at this passage one uh and it it's, it's obvious, but it's important um, to, to unpack this a little bit. 
the first thing is, is that Jesus is tempted. Um, the word become flesh, God in the flesh. The hope of this world was tempted. And part of his incarnate, incarnation is that Jesus experienced all that we experience in our lives, including temptation. Um, Hebrews 4.15 um, underlines this. And you know what? This makes all the difference in the world. Because when we talk about um, the God we worship, uh, it makes all the difference to know that Jesus Christ is not sitting on some cloud far, far away with his eyes half closed, oblivious to the realities and the difficulties that you and I face. That Jesus was tempted. And that means when you and I are tempted, um, we have someone, we have an advocate who understands what we're going through. And I'll tell you, when it comes to suffering, it comes to those sorts of challenges that makes all the difference. The second thing is this, and that is the source of Jesus's temptation, um, who is the devil. Um, and, and for some of you, uh, devil talk is problematic. <laughs> uh, the devil, honestly, David, really, I, this is 2021, not medieval times. I mean, what are you doing talking about the devil? Well, I respond by saying a couple things. One is that, uh, well, the Bible, including Jesus himself, uh, affirms the existence of the devil. So that means we should at least pay attention to this. Secondly, uh, the devil's motives and actions are consistent uh, right from the beginning. Uh, his, his motives have never changed, and that is to oppose God, uh, to destroy God's creation. And to do this, he doesn't need to be overly creative. His, his old temptations tend to work quite well throughout the ages. Uh, but the devil's job is to tempt, seduce, and to destroy relationship, especially our relationship with God and our relationships with one another. Thirdly, I would say this is that recognizing the reality of the devil actually helps us make sense of the world in which we live. It helps us understand a lot of what's going on now. You can't blame everything on the devil. I mean, the sinfulness in my heart does a number on a lot of things uh, just fine. But uh, I think it does help us understand um, our world when we take into consideration a malevolent personal force that is anti-God. I think it does help us understand. And I think it's crucial for Christians to be aware of the devil's existence, especially if you're feeling overwhelmed by seemingly unconquerable yet inexplicable pressures, forces. And so, yes, we need to be careful of the devil, uh, but we do not need to give in to fear. He can mess you up, but we do know because what scripture teaches us is that he has been ultimately defeated through the power of the cross. So this is the devil that, um, that tempts Jesus in the wilderness. He's anti-God, anti-God's good creation, which leads to our third observation, which is this. What does this story of Jesus have to do with the overall story of scripture, which is, an, which is always a good question to ask, um, especially as you make your way through the book of Matthew. Uh, as our man, Simon Peacock, has pointed out, 
uh, the story of Matthew, the story of Jesus fits into the larger story of scripture. You can't just pull this out, isolate it, but you need to see how it fits. And so leading up to chapter four in the book of Matthew, we're being told something really important about Jesus. What is this? Well, Jesus is revealing something really important about um, his identity and his mission. And uh, he, I mean, you begin with the promise back in Abraham, the promise given to Abraham back in Genesis 12. God's promise was what? That he, God would make Abraham into a great nation. And that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Okay. Uh, this is a promise that runs through the pages of scripture. Uh, we know that in the Old Testament, Israel, rather than um, living out this promise to be a great nation and through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed, instead of affecting the surrounding nations, they are actually infected by the surrounding nations and they take on many of these nations' idolatrous practices. Um, Israel, interesting, in the book of Exodus, is called God's firstborn son. Jesus, through his words and actions, is the son of God who, and this is key, he takes the story of Israel into himself. And much of Jesus's life will mirror the story of Israel. But where Israel fails, Jesus succeeds. So Jesus, as the firstborn son, um, takes on the role of the true Israel. So you think about this, think about some of the parallels. Just as Israel passed through the Red Sea, Jesus in chapter 3 passes through the waters of baptism. When he emerges, as we explored last week, Jesus is affirmed as Yahweh's beloved only son in whom he is well pleased. And Israel, interesting, right after passing through the Red Sea, what happens? They're led out into the desert where they experience temptations. And so here's the question the story is asking. How will Jesus, the true Israel, do in the face of the temptations that he will experience? Okay. So Jesus, he's um, led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And we read that he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, right? And then while he's fasting, he experiences temptation and the tempter the devil comes to him and he says these words he says if you are the son of god command these stones to become loaves of bread right so what is this temptation well it's interesting because in chapter three we, we just like jesus was affirmed his identity was affirmed uh you have an echo of all sorts of uh, passages from the old testament but uh, it's, it's affirmed that Jesus is, is loved. Um, he's the one with whom he is well-pleased. Uh, the spirit descends upon him. But now he is hungry and he is in the desert. And when you're tired, when you're hungry, when you're stressed, it's easy to forget what is foundational. And uh, sowing doubt is one of the devil's tried and true strategies, um, especially um, when we're tired. And the devil always sows doubt. He sows doubt in God's goodness and in God's reality. We see this way back in, in the garden where the, the devil says to, to the woman, uh, did God really say 
right? And so what does the devil say to Jesus? If, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So what's going on here? Well, it seems like the devil's trying to get Jesus to misuse his divine prerogative as the son of God. He essentially says, if you are the son of God, why stay hungry? I mean, turn one of these stones into bread, why don't you? Now, a couple of things to notice here. One is, and this is important to get, is that temptations uh, are not always about getting us to do something that is sinful. Right? I mean, it, you're hungry. It's, it's not a bad thing to want to eat. But here's the thing. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the desert to fast and not to eat, uh, to prepare for his ministry. And so turning stones into bread would distract Jesus from the very reason why he's led in the desert in the first place, why the Father led him in there in the first place. So how does Jesus respond? Well, it's interesting. He quotes from Deuteronomy, again, which links Jesus' experience to the, to the desert uh, with Israel's experience. He quotes um, Deuteronomy 8.3. It says, um, man shall not live by bread alone but every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, in Deuteronomy 8.3, Moses reminded Israel that their time in the desert was to remind them that God, God was their ultimate provider, that he would sustain them in their weaknesses. And so the first temptation relates to, to Jesus' personal trust of the Father. Will he trust him? And I think the question we need to ask is, will we trust him? I remember uh, hearing a, an old professor friend of mine, and he was, uh, he's an Old Testament guy. And he was telling the story about once uh, he had a friend who was a businessman, a Christian businessman. But as a Christian businessman, he was doing some pretty dodgy practices. He was, he was not being always ethical, and he was being a little underhanded and, and, and cheating and and uh, my friend, this professor, he challenges. He says, you can't, you can't act this way. You cannot act with such a lack of integrity. And the guy got all defensive. And he says, well, what are you talking about? He goes, I have to, uh, I have to make ends meet. He goes, I have to eat, don't I? And I'll never forget what my professor friend said to him. He looked at him straight in the eyes. And he says, no, you do not need to eat. He says, if it means uh, for you to, to lose your integrity, to live in such a way that dishonors God, and if you have a choice between eating and honoring God, will you honor God? And I, I remember hearing that, and it was just, it was quite a powerful statement. And the, the big question in this, in this temptation is, is the question, will we trust God? Temptation is always to be, you know, to do something practical over faithful. Um, I remember Dallas Willard once saying that, that the Christian life is, is learning to believe what we say we believe. We say we trust in God. And so will we put our lives what we're, where our mouth is, right? Will we actually um, live lives of, of, of faithfulness? So that's the first temptation. The second temptation, what's the second temptation? The second temptation is to choose a spectacular over love. Uh, in the second temptation, 
the devil tempts Jesus to put on a religious show. Uh, look what it says. He goes, uh, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they'll bear you up lest you're, you strike your foot against the stone. Uh, the second temptation is full of holy things. Have you noticed that? Jesus is, is uh, led to a holy place, a holy city. And then a holy place, the holy temple, and uh, read holy scriptures. So holy, holy, holy. Um, so what's this temptation? Well, whereas the first temptation was to choose the practical over trusting God, the second temptation is for Jesus to become more spiritual than God himself. The devil essentially says, all right, if, 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 if you are the son of God, well, then you need to arrive in style, Jesus. My goodness. You need to look the part. You need to get people's attention. And here's a plan. What we're going to do is we're going to take you to the highest point of the temple. People are going to gather around. What's this guy doing on the top of the temple? And, and here's the thing. When you jump, when you jump, the Bible teaches that the angels will lift you into the sky. It will be sensational. People will be impressed. And then, wow, then there'll be no longer any doubt in anyone's mind that you are the son of God. So let, let's unpack this a little bit first. And this is important to, to get. Uh, the devil tempts Jesus with scripture. Yikes. He quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12 where the psalmist describes God's care for the faithful in Israel. Now, that's a warning for us here. The devil is at work in the wilderness when we're weak, but sometimes in the church when we're strong. And some of the, some of the most egregious evils we see in the history of the church comes from the, the wrong use of Scripture. Scripture has been used to justify slavery, uh, the oppression of women, um, dictatorship governments. And so that's the thing we do. That's why you have to not just read the Bible. Well, one, you do need to read the Bible, but two, you need to read the Bible well. Because if you don't read the Bible well, my goodness, you can go off into all sorts of strange directions. The other thing the devil does is he tempts Jesus to be spectacular. He says, Yeah, I heard that you received your confirmation from the Father that you are his beloved one, but let's make sure, let's make sure that you really are who you say you are. Let's prove it. Let's, let's do something miraculous, Jesus. Be religiously spectacular. And then, wow, then you'll know for sure that you're the son of God. And on the, other, the other thing is everybody else will know that you are the son of God. And now for starters, we have to realize that Jesus has the ability to do what the devil asks him to do. He has the ability to turn stones into bread. Yeah. Uh, he could jump down and, and, and he'd be fine. I mean, we realize this because just before his arrest, Jesus states that he could call on his father to rescue him. And his father would send more than 12 legions of angels, we read. But look at Jesus's response here. Again, it's telling. Deuteronomy 6.13. Jesus says, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So what is happening here? Well, Satan is trying to get Jesus to test the Father. 
in two ways. One, by intentionally putting himself into harm way, harm's way, he wants Jesus to manipulate the Father, to force his hand. But true faith, true faith makes no such demands. Secondly, uh, the devil wants Jesus to manipulate the responses of the people. What a spectacular thing. You know, and that's what you can expect with Jesus. Miracles and spectacular, one thing after another. And so Jesus is being tested to prove that the Father really loves him. Prove it, Jesus, by forcing him to send help. And Jesus says, no. No, you do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. And so what's the challenge that you and I are faced with here? Well, here's a question we need to ask ourselves. Is God's love for you enough? Do you trust that the maker of the universe loves you deeply? And is that enough for your everyday life? Will we take God at his word without needing signs and wonders, without needing to see something spectacular? Um, will we take God at his word that he really does love us in our ordinary everyday lives? I think that's a big question to ask, which leads to the, the final temptation, which is to be powerful rather than to, and then serving. Look at the, the third one. Uh, and it says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them all, and he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Notice the devil in this whole sequence of events leads Jesus higher and higher and higher starts in the desert then he's on top of the temple now he's on top of the mountain and uh that's that's what the devil does he leads us upwards up the corporate ladder up into higher income brackets whatever it happens to be the holy spirit is actually in the business of leading us downwards he leads jesus down into the waters of baptism he leads Jesus down into the wilderness of temptation. And the way of God is always a way of downward mobility. God the Son comes down in the incarnation. He comes down and enters the messiness of this world and the dust in the mire. In Jesus, everything that is exalted is brought low and everything low is exalted. So what is happening here? Well, here on a very high mountain, the devil offers Jesus a shortcut. You know, Jesus, if he wants, he can bypass this whole, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son kind of thing. He could bypass the journey to and uh, through the cross and simply enter into a highly exalted state and to be very, very, very powerful. There's just one teeny tiny catch. To get there, he must give up the will of the Father and worship the devil on earth. So here, 
what do we have? Well, here we have the temptation uh, to choose the way of power over the way of the cross, uh, to the, the way to be served rather than to serve. And I'll tell you, this has always been the temptation that the church has faced, still faces. We say to ourselves, man, as a church, if only we had enough power, if only we had the right people and positions of political power, think of all the good we can do. We could change the world. You know, the problem with Christianity in Canada is we don't have the people in positions of power, that sort of thing. Um, man, if only we could get power, then we'd be okay. Wow, that's the danger. And why is this temptation so strong? Well, I think it's so strong because power and control are a lot easier to live out than the life of love. It is always easier to use power to dominate, to coerce, than actually loving one another. Because love requires effort. It requires intimacy. It requires vulnerability. It requires weakness. It requires trust. And so in the face of this third temptation, what does Jesus say? He says, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And Jesus tells the tempter, no, no, I'm not going to be that kind of ruler. I'm not going to rule through power and coercion. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. I'm going to be ruled by love that's higher, higher than the needs of the world. I'm going to be ruled by the intimate love that I have from my father who loves me. And, uh, and, and, and the very picture of the Bible is a picture of God as a God who disadvantages himself for the advantage of others. See, God's understanding of power is not like the world's. The world's is understanding of power, and I've talked about this before, is like a zero-sum game. Like for me to have power, you can't have any. For me to be boss, you can't be the boss. That's not the way God's power works. God's power is always expansive. It always multiplies. It always lifts up. And you see this in, in the garden, in the garden of Gethsemane. When faced with the temptation um, and, and, and his cry for the cup to be taken from him. Jesus says, yeah, but not my will, but yours be done, Father. Now, there's so much more in this passage that we could look at, but let me just conclude with a couple observations. First is this, I think this passage teaches us to resist the devil um, because he can mess you up. I mean, we read in, in uh, James chapter four or in first uh, Peter chapter five or in Ephesians chapter six, the, the absolute importance of resisting the devil. And we, we must not be unaware of his strategies. Uh, if you are unaware, you're in a lot of trouble. And so this is something to pay attention to. Secondly, this passage teaches us to resist the power of the devil through the power of the Holy Spirit. Greater is he that is in you that is in the world, right? And so it is the power of the Holy Spirit. It is his power his armor that enables us to resist the devil. 
on our own, you try to resist the, uh, the wiles of the evil one. Um, I've said this before, the theological term to describe the state that you will be in is toast. You are toast. You are in a lot of trouble. Um, we need, it's only God that can, that can uh, empower us and strengthen us. Thirdly, allow the word of God to shape your life. Knowing God's word will keep you on track. Um, learn God's word and learn it well. I remember, uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many times where I've just misunderstood God's word or I, I haven't learned it well. But I find when you study God's word well, it, it shapes your heart and prepares you. I mean, for Jesus, here he is. He's, he's, he's hungry and he's been fasting and he's been under incredible temptation. And right away, his, word, his mind goes, goes to the right response to the, to the evil one. And if you know God's word, and when you are tempted, the, God's word will come to mind and will guard your heart and your mind. It's really important. Second, uh, the, the last thing is this, the fourth thing is this, believe what we say we believe. The father really is as loving as his son says he is. Um, and so half of the Christian life, most of the Christian life, so over half, um, is learning to believe what we say we believe it really is it's about learning to believe what we say we believe and so the life of discipleship of following jesus is trusting the father even when it doesn't seem practical right you trust the father because he's the father Secondly, the life of discipleship rests in the fact that God the Father, again, he's as loving as the Son says he is, and that you and I can live quiet, peaceful, non-spectacular lives resting in this love, and that's okay. And finally, the life of discipleship recognizes that only when we worship God as God will our lives make sense, will they work the way they were supposed to work where we live the lives that we were created and redeemed to live because they are living in sync with the one who created us. And that is a good thing. And so the Christian life is, is not that of striving higher and higher, thinking foolishly that somehow we're in control of our lives. It's not about being upwardly mobile. Uh, we really have no control. The way of life that the book of Matthew is teaching us to live is a life of the cross, is a way of the cross, is learning how to die daily. Die to self, die to power, die to control, die to being relevant, and simply to live in Christ. So let me leave you with this question. This is a question that has come up as I've been walking through this passage. And it's a question I ask myself almost every day. Do you know that you are deeply loved by the one who matters most? And what difference does that make? Now, one of the ways we can respond to this is by breaking bread, um, by taking communion. And this is hard. Here I am on a screen, you know, talking about communion. And I mean, communion is so much about being together. And I long, I know you all long for the days where we can gather together. But in the meantime, we make the best of things. 
And so I know that uh, you will be um, taking communion together um, in your in your family units or however that looks like. And you'll be taking ordinary bread. Now the bread is ordinary, but it is extraordinary significance. The bread represents the body of Christ, that we belong to Jesus, that he is our head, that we are Jesus people. That's who identifies us. And so when you take the bread, you're saying you are his body. We are his body. And then you're going to take juice. And the juice represents the blood of Jesus. And so basically, when you take the juice, you're saying we are his people. Yes, not because of anything we bring to the table, but because of God's amazing grace shown through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Through his shed blood on the cross, he has forgiven us all of our sins and we've been set free. And now through faith, we are adopted as children, as adopted sons and daughters of the Most High that we could call the living God of the universe, Father. And that's pretty cool. And so when we take bread and we take juice, we're, we're saying, we're making a very important statement about who we are, we belong to God, and how we are to live our lives, that we will call, we will live our lives um, by uh, denying ourselves, by taking up our cross and following Jesus wherever we go. Okay? So I'm going to pray and I'm going to hand things over to, uh, to those uh, who are leading us in communion. But let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. And we pray that you would um, strengthen us in these difficult times. And we thank you that uh, in the midst uh, that you teach us, um, in the midst of uh, temptation, how to respond to the, uh, to the wiles of the evil one. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the true Israel, that you are the true son. And uh, you fulfill all the promises uh, laid out in scripture. Lord, help us to walk with you. And as we walk with you, may we experience the life that you have created us and redeemed us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everyone.